A black triangular fin appears above the waterline. Sleek and streamlined, the shark swims with grace. Uh, hold on, hold on. It's not quite right. Hey, Molly, can we try something a bit different with the music? Cool. Okay, yeah, sorry. Just start that again. A black triangular fin appears above the waterline. Sleek and streamlined, the shark swims with grace. No, hold and- on, hold on. It's just, that's kind of dark. Molly, can we try something a bit more upbeat? Like happy? Sorry. A black triangular fin appears above the waterline. Sleek and streamlined, the shark. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, okay. That's, yeah, that's a bit too frivolous, I think. Yeah, Molly, tone it down a bit. Okay, alright, this is it. I can feel it. A black triangular fin appears above the waterline. Sleek and streamlined, the shark swims with grace and assurance, tail moving from side to side as it slices through the water. Hundreds of millions of years of evolution have created this unbelievably incredible piece of machinery, perfectly adapted to see, to sense, to move in the ocean environment. The apex predator, the master of its ocean domain. Yeah, perfect. Hey, Molly, nailed it. Nice one. See, sharks aren't bad people. They just need a better soundtrack. Wild. It's wild. Wild. It's really wild. 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 So wild. The Wild Dunedin Podcast. No my hari mai kite kone i purangi o otipoti mohoao. Welcome to the Wild Dunedin Podcast. Welcome, welcome. We are delighted to be back again for our second series of the Wild Dunedin Podcast. If this is the first time you've tuned in, well, this podcast is all about telling the stories of the wild things that live around the beautiful city of Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand. So the podcast is all part of this bigger Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature, which runs each April and celebrates Dunedin's title as the wildlife capital of New Zealand. Hey, we should probably do proper intros. Should we do intros? Yeah, okay. I call Jamie McCauley TNA. I'm a conservation biologist who devils with some storytelling around the sides. And call Claire Tokoikoa. My name is Claire, and I work as a Science Outreach Projects Coordinator in the Otago Museum. But in my spare time, I like to surf. And in fact, since moving to Dunedin, I surf a lot. 
like all the time. I live in St. Clair, so it's literally across the road from me. And before I came here, I wanted to check out what it was like. And I was told, you know, the waves are really good, but it's really cold. Um, but that's fine. I learned to surf on the west coast of Ireland, so a cold is fine. But I was also told that it was sharky. And that is something new for me. And something that I think about a lot here. Yeah, and you know, like, I'm kind of fascinated by this as well, because, you know, you, you know the stats, hey? Like, you're, you're more likely to die taking a selfie than by shark attack, or more likely to be killed by a cow <laughs> than a shark. Yeah, I... <laughs> I do, I know, I've, I've seen those, I know them, but I don't really take that many selfies and I don't really hang around cows all that much, <laughs> but I do, like I, I know what you're saying and the logical part of my brain understands that, but there's just some other part of me that can't get these thoughts out of my mind when I'm sitting in the water. You know, I'm on my board, and my legs are dangling down. by sharks as well like I would love to see one in the water so I guess this episode is me trying to deal with this internal struggle about sharks around Otago I've got these key questions to answer first what sharks are actually around Otago what sharks are out there when I'm also out there secondly why do I, and I don't think it's just me, so, you know, why do we, in general, fear sharks? And how does this fear dictate how we treat them? So first up, what sharks are there around New Zealand? What sharks are there around Otago? I talked to two people about this. Clinton Duffy is a technical advisor in the Marine Ecosystems team in the Department of Conservation. And I asked him first about species of sharks around New Zealand in general. Uh, it's about 60 species of shark, but it includes um, the chimeras and, and the rays. Right? There are about 113 different of sharks and rays that are recognised from New Zealand waters at, at present. You know, when, when people talk about talk to you about sharks, I think they have one shark in particular or, or maybe two sharks in mind and that's things like tiger sharks and great white sharks. Um, and, you know, they have this um, this image of this, uh, you know, these quite fearsome predators. Um, sharks and rays are a much more diverse group than that. Um, they co- cover a myriad of forms. I also talked to another shark scientist, Rob Lewis, about the kinds of sharks that we find around Otago. Rob is studying a shark called a broad-nosed seven-gill shark, 
which I hadn't heard of before coming to New Zealand. So he explained to me where these sharks fit in their family and where we can find them around New Zealand. Rob is just finishing up his master's studying these sharks in the marine department in the University of Otago. Long overdue, actually, finishing up on a master's. Um, uh, yeah, looking at seven gill sharks, which are a, we assume, reasonably abundant species found around most of New Zealand. So seven gills particularly are coastal shallow water sharks. So they prefer shallow estuaries and inlets uh, and things like that. So they're often a shark that people sort of catch fishing just because they are um, all around the place and the same areas that humans would usually hang out. The rest of their family, which are the six and the seven gills, normal sharks have got five gills per side, so 10 gills total, um, all are deep sea sharks. So the six and the seven gills, uh, the big eye six gill, the big nose six gill and the um, sharp nose seven gill, it's all about the noses and eyes, um, are all deep sea species, while the broad nose seven gill is the one that I'm studying, which is a coastal nearshore species. There's very little data on them. Uh, we know nothing about their abundances or uh, movements or anything like that around New Zealand. Uh, very little of that is actually known in a lot of other places. There have been two or three scientists uh, that have sort of dedicated their time to these species previously, but generally they're very understudied, very little understood. So are there broad-nosed seven-gill sharks around Dunedin and the Otago Peninsula? Well, Rob says they do like to hang out in the harbour in the summertime, but then seem to disappear during the wintertime. Loads of areas in the harbour for them to um, find little inlets and shallow areas to rest and recover. Um, there's a lot of food around the Dunedin area for them to forage on, especially in summer um, when you get a lot of species returning um, from breeding and other things. So there's a bit of a peak in available food as well, like stingrays and bits increase. Uh, so summertime seems to attract them and then wintertime they seem to move off somewhere else. And what other species of sharks can we find around Dunedin and Otago? Well, when Rob describes these, he talks about big sharks and small sharks, but also pelagic and benthic. So benthic means the seafloor bed. So these are sharks that kind of hang out or crawl along the seafloor. And pelagic is the water column. So they move in that bit between the seafloor and the top of the water. In the bigger ranges, uh, offshore, I know we get things like makos, um, poor beagles hang out there sometimes as well, but they're a bit of an intermediate, so they might come close to shore as well. Blue sharks are actually a pelagic species normally, but they come in quite close to shore here, and in Blueskin Bay you can see them in droves if you go out on a boat. Um, seven gills, obviously. White sharks pass through the area. Smaller species, you've got a whole bunch there. You've got your carpet sharks, which are your, your benthic type sharks. Your school shark, which is a sort of midwater shark. Uh, rig or a spiny dogfish, those are two different species. Um, uh, hound sharks, uh, spotted hound sharks. Um, there's quite a vast array of species in the area. It's quite quite rich for sharks. So there are lots of different sharks in Otago, yeah? Like um, big sharks, small sharks, ground-hugging sharks, water-column-dwelling sharks. Like, Rob kind of quickly skipped over one thing, though, where he's like, ah, da-da-da-da, yeah, white sharks passing through. <laughs> I was like, ah, uh, uh, white sharks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, oh, yes, uh, just by the way, um, also around Dunedin, you can find the greatest apex predator in the ocean. You know, no biggie. Yeah, let's, um, you want to go for a surf? <laughs> <laughs> but this kind of brings us to your next question, right? Which is like, why we fear sharks. And I mean, presumably this is because they eat us. Like, because they are this wild, uncontrollable creature in an environment that we aren't, like, mega made for. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it. You know, I'm sitting on my surfboard and I start thinking, mm, you know, I don't know what's out there. There could be something coming for me. I can't even see it coming. It could be coming right now. And I, I start thinking of all these scenarios, like how I would react and what I would do if a shark attacked me. Sharks that attack then, right? So this, this is the fear. So I looked into what I really should be scared of. And, and there's a big three implicated worldwide in shark attacks. So there's the tiger shark, the bull shark, and the great white shark. And of these, the only one found around here is the great white shark. But they are found around Otago, right? Great whites are around Otago? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Rob mentioned it, um, but I also wanted to talk to Clinton Duffy about this because he's been working with a scientist called Malcolm Francis um, from NIWA, and together they have been tagging and researching great white sharks in Stewart Island. So I asked Clinton specifically about great white sharks around Otago. All of the great white sharks that we've tagged at Stewart Island have sort of, those that have gone up the east coast, most that we've tagged tended to go up the west coast and head across the Tasman to Australia when they leave Stewart Island. Uh, but some have gone up the east coast of the South Island. And all of those sharks have swum past um, uh, Otago Peninsula without stopping. In fact, most of them, as far as we can tell, have passed the Otago coastline fairly well out to sea. Um, but what we do see at Stuart, places like Stewart Island and Chatham, at the Chathams and, um, and some of the tagging work that we've done in the harbours up here is that great white sharks have preferences for individual great whites have preferences for particular places and they will, will return to those places year after year. So it's possible that there are some great white sharks out there that like different spots along the um, Otago coastline and either visit them regularly on during migrations or may even come back and spend extended periods of time there. And I know there's lots of kind of stories of, of different great whites around Otago, like KZ7 yep. and the yes. Um, yes. jaws that are in the Otago Museum from a, a great white that was caught in the harbour and stuff like that. So is it it's possible then that there there used to be some that kind of Hung out around here that they they pref- they had a preference for Otago and Dunedin. It's possible, yeah, it's possible, and it's possible that they were caught killed a long, long time ago. Mm. Um, but um, so yeah, there's no doubt that great white sharks are both smaller and less abundant around mainly New Zealand coast than they used to be in the past. Um, you look at some of the old historical whaling records of, and, and the sharks that were taken around the whaling stations in the North and South Islands um, in the 1800s and early 1900s, um, and they were 
they were seen very regularly and there were some pretty, um, some very big life charts taken um, during that period. And it's possible that, um, that, uh, there's simply just much fewer of them around the mainland coast. Yeah. We don't know of any sort of aggregation sites, um, around the Otago coastline, um, that, you know, comparable to what you see at Stewart Island. Okay, so maybe there used to be great white sharks hanging around Otago and, and sort of living here, but now they're probably just passing up and down the coast by the sounds. And so none of those other sharks around here uh, attack humans? Yeah, so I, I looked into this, and I'll just say shark attack data is a bit tricky. It's even some minor interactions like being bumped off your surfboard or a shark grabbing a hood are classed as a shark attack. And the other thing, like Rob said this to me, you know, while you're being attacked by a shark, possibly the last thing on your mind is trying to accurately identify what species of shark it is. You just want to get out of there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not, now six gills or seven, I can't kind of tell. <laughs> or like, is that, that nose looks quite broad to me. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so um, from what I've looked at from the shark attack data, and in general, they say anything that's the right size and that's over 1.8 meters is a potential threat to humans because of the power of their jaw and their teeth. So then we would have to put in that shark attack group, the mako, the seven gill, the poor beagle and the blue sharks. Um, but when I look at these species, the number of unprovoked attacks worldwide are tiny and mostly non-fatal. And when you look for New Zealand, you know, definitely seven gills have been identified in attacks around the South Island, but all non-fatal. And I guess what that means that really my fear is just fear of one particular shark which is kind of how I feel, like, when I think of shark, just one jumps to the front of my mind, really. <laughs> oh, it's true, yeah, it's true. Um, Jaws, but yeah, we'll we'll get back to that. But, you know, the thing is, living in St. Clair... The fact that great white sharks have been around is undeniable. You know, I walk across the road, I see the shark warning bell, I see the plaque in the ground dedicated to three young men who were killed in shark attacks in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, it makes it very real. But still, my fear is way out of proportion to the chances of me being attacked. There are so many, you know, you are more likely to facts floating around, which means that instead of being scared of a shark, I should be more scared of, you know, taking a selfie or my toaster or my pillow. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to someone who could explain to me where this fear comes from, what it does to me, 
and why I seem to grossly overestimate my chances of being attacked by a shark. I think sharks are pretty cool. They're exciting and they're mysterious and they're also a little bit scary and that's okay. But I love sharks and I also really feel for sharks because, you know, they've been around for hundreds of millions of years just being sharks and keeping our oceans healthy in the last couple of hundred years. We've really villainized them and um, decimated their populations. So, yeah, I feel I feel really sorry for sharks, and I um, I feel compelled to hopefully educate people and um, talk a bit about why we need them. So this is Sam, but I'll let him introduce himself. Hello, listeners. I'm Sam Fraser Baxter. I'm a surfer and a spear fisherman and a writer. And I'm currently living in Wellington, but I've spent the last six years in Dunedin, and I was born in Auckland. And on the academic front, I have a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Science Communication. My Master's thesis was actually kind of inspired by the response to McFanning being kind of bumped by a shark in competition live on television in South Africa. But... The research itself, I focused on human response to shark bites, specifically media, political, and public responses. So basically what I was trying to explore was the way the media covers shark bites and then the interplay between the media, public, and politicians and how that process results in policy like shark nets or shark cows. So in the past following um, spates of shark bites, we often see media sensationalizing shark bites and often that results in public panic. And in turn, that often results in pressure on politicians and policymakers and then we get things like shark nets. So I was trying to explore these processes in the context of shark bites on the north coast of New South Wales in Australia in 2015. The first thing I wanted to ask Sam was about where this fear comes from. I wanted to know whether it was something innate that I was born with or whether it's something that I've learned. Our fear of sharks is is definitely innate and learned. So popular culture in the media has for a long time demonized sharks and films like Jaws have been seminal and portraying sharks as these kind of bloodthirsty human-eating killers. And then the media also has played a pretty big role in skewing our understanding of sharks and shark behavior. So it's, there's a big part of it is learned, but at the same time, we've got to acknowledge that as humans, we're still animals. We're not robots. We're emotive, primal beings, and our survival instincts are deep-set. So we're navigating a modern world with these primal instincts we developed over 100 years ago in the wild. And this is, this is something that we quite often forget. So we're, we're irrational we're beings and being, being fearful of being predated on is certainly innate. It's a, it's a survival instinct. But all in all, I think, I think the public's widespread fear is majorly shaped by the media and popular culture depicting sharks as evil kind of monsters. So the next thing I wanted to know was, why do we in general, and me in particular, 
overestimate the chances of a shark attack. Like when I'm sitting in the water, I think about shark attacks. But I don't go about my daily life worrying about other things that are far more likely to hurt or injure me. Why is this? Again, it goes back to fear and, you know, these statistical analogies of you're more likely to die on the way to the beach or by a vending machine or by a bit of plastic from your water bottle. They're so widespread and people know that the statistical likelihood of being bitten by a shark is is absolutely minuscule, but fear of sharks is, is still quite widespread. And part of it is about fear. Fear is an intrinsic part of the human psyche. And you know, a fearless human wouldn't have survived very long back when we were living in the wild. So um, so as advanced humans, this fear presents quite interesting tension with our primal and instinctual minds. But fear fear is has been understood to to kind of paralyze our efforts to think clearly and calmly about risks. And if a risk or uh, outcome is vivid, emotional, frightening, easy to imagine, which a shark bite is, it's you know it, it plays on a lot of anxieties about being bitten and drowning and um, fear of the unknown, all these things. People people become oversensitive to that probability of harm, so we overstate the risk, but because because it's easy to imagine, and um, after that you can expect changes in thought and behaviour. In Ireland, we don't really have any sharks big enough to attack us, so I don't no? have to think no. about them. I never think about them in Ireland. You don't. You just. You don't have to. And at one stage, there was like one great white shark that was tagged that was kind of making its way towards England and everybody was just freaking out. And then, of course, she veered off and went like further south. And Oh, that's like, so funny. The media would have been gutted. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, we've got a story on our hands. <laughs> so this led us into talking about the media. What role does the media play? And why do they seem to give so much time and space to shark stories? When we talk about the the media, we've got to remember that the media is a business and they've got to make money. And sharks are fascinating and shark bites are inherently fascinating. This idea that we can still go out into this wild environment and be predated on. So people are always interested in sharks and shark bites. And the media knows this, so whenever there's any kind of story to do with sharks, they'll talk about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and basically just report on it as much as they can because people are interested. And that kind of over-reportage skews people's perception of risk and the real danger of sharks, which is minuscule. Yeah, I found that really interesting in your thesis because I hadn't, for some reason, I had not thought about it. But of course, they're money-making machines and they want yeah. to, they need to sell stories. And if shark bites are interesting to people and grab their attention, then that's what they're going to write story on. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And people people completely forget that when you know we've got this kind of idealized idea that the media are the moral conscious conscience of democratic society, and that the role of the media is to keep people people informed and politicians accountable, but really the media is also entertainment and a money-making machine and sharks sharks are really good fodder for for the media to sell newspapers or to get clicks onto stories sam went on to explain how this overrepresentation of sharks in the media can then stoke public fear so any existing fear in the general public is ramped up from all of this overreporting and this then means that it's on public's minds, and so they put pressure on government to introduce policy. And oftentimes, this results in very negative effects for the sharks. Now, of course, Dunedin has a very personal history with this kind of interaction between shark attack, public fear, pressure on local government, and implementation of policy in order to try and protect people from shark attacks. I asked Sam to explain the history and the context of the Dunedin shark nets. Basically, there were five attacks in Dunedin in seven years over the 60s and 70s, and three of those attacks were fatalities. So not surprisingly, a lot of people saw these sharks as a big problem and the council decided to put shark nets into the water, which were a very kind of in vogue thing to do back then. And the th- interesting thing about shark nets is that a lot of people don't actually know how they work. Um, so a lot of people assume that a shark net is this kind of barrier which creates this safe, swimming area where sharks can't enter but the purpose of a shark net is to catch sharks drown them with the idea that if you lower what you perceive to be the local population of big sharks you're lowering the likelihood that a big shark and a human is going to meet in the water so so basically the shark net was a hundred meter long net which floated out at sea off St. Clair and basically a shark could swim around it, underneath it, over it, whatever. And those nets were, I think they were put in in 1967 and after about 40 years they were taken out in 2011 basically because scientists let the council know that they were they were pretty much useless and that there was, at the time, there were lots of public campaigning against them, which is great. And so they were taken out in 2011. And I think the only person who was sad about that was probably the guy who was paid to deal with the nets. It's also important to note that shark nets are indiscriminate. So as well as catching sharks, they also catch anything else big enough to be caught in the shark net. So that can be whales, dolphins, sea lions, seals, stingrays and turtles. 
So with shark nets, you also get incredible, incredibly large amounts of bycatch. In terms of how effective these Dunedin shark nets were at doing their job, which is, you know, reducing the population of those large sharks, which could potentially bite humans. It's really hard to tell because there are some records on what was caught in the shark nets, but they start many years after the nets were put in place. Now, there are interviews and oral histories with people who tended the nets in those early years, and they seem to point to potentially a large number of great white sharks being caught in the nets. But without records, it's really hard to say. I asked Clinton Duffy, from what he knew, were there great white sharks caught in these nets? Well, I think there probably were some great whites that were caught in the shark net. There's quite, as you say, the information is quite conflicting. I received um, all of the, uh, the data on catches from the shark nets from the early 1990s until they um, um, ceased being set, and there wasn't a single great white shark caught in the net over that time period. Um, prior to that, um, I think there is some evidence that there were some great white sharks caught, um, possibly in the early years of the, of the program, but how many there were um, is uh, really, really debatable. And what else was caught in these nets? The species that's most common, that was most commonly caught in, in those shark nets was the uh, broad-nosed chippendale shark, which is very common around the South Island and lower, and, and, you know, lower parts of the North Island. Um, you know, and then you get um, a, few, a few large school sharks, which is your know, fish and chip shark, <laughs> and uh, and essentially harmless. And then there were a few blues, marcos, and the occasional thresher and poor beetle shark caught in them as well. And I know of two basking sharks that were that were also caught in those nets. Okay, so yeah, like our primal fear of sharks has then just been like stoked up by this scary movie from the 70s and this like dramatic newspaper narratives and 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 like all of this has just sucked for sharks eh like both worldwide and actually here in Dunedin too you know I read this research paper which had gathered all the data that it could find worldwide you know commercial fishing data recreational fishing data shark net data and they put it all together and they ran statistics on what the numbers meant do you want to take a guess on the number of sharks they estimate that humans kill every year oh man it must be awful it, it would be like that like like tens of thousands eh? One. Hundred million. No. One hundred million sharks. No. And Jamie, like this is the middle of their estimate, and according to their numbers, it could actually be as high as two hundred and seventy-three million sharks. freaking yeah like nah yeah i know i know and it 
it just blew my mind. And I talked to another marine science master's student, Rosa Edwards, who is who's doing further study on the Stewart Island population of seven gill sharks. And she made this really interesting point to me. Sharks are caught as bycatch so much, and particularly for seven gills, my study species, we know that about 200 sharks or 150 to 200 sharks are taken out of the water per year um, through bycatch. And um, they're generally put back into the water, but it's not likely that they're going to survive those those nets. Um, if I told you that 200 bottlenose dolphins are being taken out of the water, your stomach would probably drop, you know, and you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is not a good thing. We need to protest. We need to go to parliament, you know, we need to do all of this stuff to change this. And I think that the what um, a lot of people don't understand is that sharks play a very similar role in the ecosystem that dolphins do or that whales do. You know, they're a top predator. They're high up in the food chain and they're regulating a lot of that those species beneath them. Something I learned about sharks was about their life history and their reproductive traits, um, which actually makes them very susceptible to overfishing. Clinton Duffy explains this. They're, they're very, very vulnerable to overfishing. Their, their reproductive biology is much more closer to that of a mammal than a fish. So, and they have they tend to have very small, smaller adult population sizes than you know bony fishes, and they give birth fairly irregularly. You know, some species give birth every year, but most we think give birth only you know once every two to three years. And they give birth to you know a small number of well-developed young. Uh, so all of those things make them more like a you know a, a reptile or a marine mammal, um, and they're much much more vulnerable to um, to human activity uh, and directed fishing than people probably realise. So they're susceptible to overfishing, and we fish some species, we catch others in bycatch, and we put out nets to catch others. You know we're depleting the sharks. So I kind of played devil's advocate with the scientists. I said, you know, so what? They are things that bite and sometimes kill humans. Why don't we just get rid of them? What are they doing anyway? Here's what they had to say. Most people don't nerd out on sharks like we do and don't put time into learning all of these really cool facts. So... Basically, if you think of the environment like a house of cards, and each different card is a different species, what happens when you take out one of those cards? The house falls down, yeah. And so it's the same thing that happens, you know, if, if a shark is one of those species and it's um, regulating those uh, smaller fish down the food web, you take that card out and the house is going to fall down. All of those other species have to change to adapt to that loss of um, a main predator. They do balance out a lot of things and they do take care of a lot of genetic problems and they do take care of a lot of disease that humans would never be able to do in the same way. Um, yeah, you're asking for trouble. Humans have not had a great history with interfering with a natural way that something's worked and had a positive experience at the end of it. Uh, so thinking that humans could be the ones who could just fish all these things uh, would be highly irresponsible and quite arrogant I would think sharks are very necessary um, it's hard to elucidate that role sometimes but it 
there have been very strong cases that show us that that is the way it is. Um, and we need them more than they need us. So, sharks are important. That leads me to my last question. And the most important question, really. How can I move on from my fear of sharks so that I can really begin to appreciate them and to campaign on their behalf to help conserve them? How can we all move on? Well, from what Sam saw in his research, there has been a shift towards more positive attitudes towards sharks and shark conservation in recent times. Yeah, there's definitely been a shift in the way that people talk about sharks and there's certainly been an increase in the public's understanding of shark behaviour. And that was really great that in 2011, Dunedin took shark nets out of the water. But what was quite quite a big turning point for sharks was the shark cull in Western Australia in 2014. So. In 2014, after a, um, after a number of fatalities, the Western Australia government started fishing for sharks with big baited drum lines. And if they were over three metres, they'd pull them up and shoot them in the head with the gun. And the shark cull was highly controversial. It made media headlines around the world. It, it blew up on social media. And there were lots of scientists writing to the Western Australia government saying that it was a terrible thing and it was basically a witch hunt. So that that controversy informed the public and communicated this idea that killing sharks wasn't a great thing to do. And so the follow-on from that was the media stopped kind of hyping sharks up because um, they started to realise that perhaps it wasn't a good good idea to do and that also the public knew a little bit more than they thought they did. So it seems like knowledge is key when it comes to sharks. The more people learn and know about sharks, the more they appreciate them and the more they fight for their conservation. I think through through good science communication, people are learning more about sharks and specifically shark conservation. And people people who are more informed about science and shark science are more likely to support shark conservation. So specifically for areas where there are where there are dangerous sharks, having a well-informed public is is the kind of best defense against irrational knee-jerk reactions. So there's certainly there's certainly work to be done, but I think in general public perceptions of sharks are improving and people are becoming more informed and more positive and they're thinking about sharks. I actually asked Sam, you know, if if another attack were to happen around Dunedin, what kind of response would he like to see? 
The response I'd like to see would probably be for people to acknowledge that when someone goes into the ocean, they're taking on the onus of risk and it's a personal responsibility they have. And so when you're shifting that that risk to the water user, it takes the responsibility away from from government. So ideally you wouldn't want to see pressure being directed to the council saying, put your shark necks back in. And I think that's something we saw in 2014 when we had the last fatality in New Zealand. There wasn't there wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to it. People people acknowledged it was a tragedy, but but that the victim was swimming in the ocean and a shark happened to be there. I just found this answer so interesting because it seems like, you know, he's just, he's viewing shark bites completely as a random act of nature. It's like you've been hit by lightning or you were out skiing and an avalanche that nobody predicted just came and and has injured or killed you. And I don't think I'm quite there yet, but I would like to get there. I think I'm on the way. And definitely what's helping me is talking to these shark scientists about what sharks are actually like. You know, stripping away that Jaws man-eating narrative, ignoring the hype from the media. What are they like? No, sharks aren't man-eating, mindless man-eating killers, you know. Sharks do not want to target humans. It's not energetically efficient for them to eat us. Media, TV, movies, these sorts of things, you know, even National Geographic and, and the photos that you usually see as, as sharks in action, more seldomly you find them just being sort of pictures of them cruising around and stuff like that. Um, and that's one of the things um, when people do ecotourism bits and pieces with sharks where they see a shark acting naturally in their natural environment they're usually surprised at how relaxed this animal is and and the way that they're not very aggressive and they're just going around their own business and they're not trying to eat every fish or everything that comes in their way Uh, so the first thing that i would want people to know is that sharks are 99 percent of the time super relaxed animals and they don't want to waste energy needlessly um they're part of their ecosystems and 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 they're you know they're they're not mindless well you can't believe anything you see on shark week i think is one of the most important (laughs) things you have to say about sharks you know i've dived with um over 25 different species of sharks um around the world um, in the open without protection um and uh, including, you know, not great whites and tigers that I know of um, yet, but um, species like bull sharks, sandbars, bronze whales, blue sharks and marco sharks, and right down to the little stuff as well. But, uh, you know, and it, I, I think I can count that. The numbers of times I've felt nervous around the shark in the water on fingers in one hand. They are also rare, most of them, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are a really, really beautiful creature. You know, diving with sharks really gives you an appreciation of how well adapted to their environment they are and how graceful and beautiful 
they are as an animal. Dead shark on the beach is quite a revolting looking animal. A live shark in the water is, is stunning. Okay, so this whole thing kind of started out with you sitting out the back at Sinclair Break, like legs dangling all helplessly in the water. And you've been on this journey, and you've taken us along on this this big journey down into the deep world that they're in. How are you feeling now? Like, you, you want to go for a surf, or...? <laughs> um, I mean... I o- I always want to go for a surf. <laughs> I guess I guess now I'm doing it with the knowledge that you know there are sharks out there. There are plenty of sharks around Otago. And yeah. some of them are big enough to bite and hurt me, but they are probably busy doing their own sharky thing. You know, I've I've probably swum and surfed with big sharks quite close by. And have just not been aware of it. They have better things to do. So that Jaws effect is gone, yeah? I don't, uh, yeah. I don't know about that. I mean, um, my fear, as Sam was saying, I guess my fear is innate and, and primal. You know, if humans didn't fear, we wouldn't survive. But I guess being aware that this fear has been amped up by watching Jaws as a child and watching shark attack videos on YouTube and reading newspaper articles helps me to kind of understand why I I do attribute, you know, certain characteristics to sharks that they don't actually have. But it seems like it's our collective fear that's bad, right? Like so bad, like, like, Killing a hundred million sharks a year, bad. Yeah, and this collective fear has, it's had a devastating effect on on shark populations of certain species worldwide. And all this negative perceptions towards sharks means that people in general are less inclined to work towards their conservation. And so if we can't nail it, like if we can't get a better soundtrack for sharks... They're going to be in big trouble, and so, so, so what? You know, what do, what do we do? Well, I guess we, we talk about them, you know, because that was, that was a cool thing for me was was talking to shark nerds. Um, you really like, I just got fizzed on their shark facts, and and they have so much stoke and love for sharks, and and once I got to know a bit more about how sharks function and how incredibly varied and interesting they are and these like amazing important roles that they play you know we really need them for healthy ocean ecosystems and and on top of that they're just cool <laughs> you know they've been around for over 400 million years and they they've just got this amazing feats of physiology that they're capable of and i guess knowing all that makes me really appreciate them and also accept that when I get into water to surf, I'm in their domain. And and if I want to live in a world with sharks, then I have to understand and be at peace with the fact that a risk of the random act of nature of a shark bite exists. Even though this risk is it's so minimal. When I get in the ocean... 
it's a risk that I am personally taking on board. You know, and, and I can minimize it even further by not surfing at dusk and dawn, not getting in the water with bleeding cuts, you know, avoiding areas where fishermen are gutting catch. But ultimately, the risk is there. But, you know, if that means we get to keep sharks, I'm fine with that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wild and Eden podcast. This was the first episode of the second series of the podcast. This podcast is created by Claire Kincannon, myself, Jamie McCauley, and Taylor Davies Colley as part of the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature, with support from Wild Dunedin Festival, the Otago Museum, and the Otago Regional Council Eco Fund. Cheers. We continue to get help, support, and friendly advice from Otago Access Radio or FM Dunedin. All of the amazing music created specifically for this episode was made by the super talented Molly Devine. Thank you to our interviewees this episode, Clinton Duffy, Rob Lewis, Rosa Edwards and Sam Fraser Baxter. And the wild intro mix-up was created by Paul Corbett. Do not forget to subscribe to the Wild Dunedin podcast and please do rate, share and tell your friends about A, how freaking cool sharks are and B, how cool the podcast is. If you want to find out more, you can check out all the links on the Wild Dunedin podcast Facebook page. Kakite ano! Okay, so I mean it sounds like the answer is more shark froth, more like fizzing mercilessly on sharks like nerdy shark facts like just yeah. general all peppers like shark nerd fest right and you my friend are in luck because i had so much <laughs> fun talking to all of these different shark researchers that I, I just got hours of tape hours and so i want to make a bonus episode all about shark research around New Zealand. So if you haven't subscribed, you should subscribe because there's going to be a super special shark research episode so that we can continue the fizz on the shark facts and we can surf the tide of the shark stoke.